You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading comes from John chapter 8, verses 12 through 38. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisee said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declared to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you will seek to kill me because of my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Thanks be to God. 
Father, we are thankful for your word, and we do need you. Uh, I need you now to speak on your behalf, to deliver your word. Your people need you now to receive it. But thanks be to God that Jesus is our defense and our righteousness, that the preaching of this sermon, the reception of this sermon is not what is required for righteousness and life, but we have righteousness and life because of Christ. We're thankful for these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. This is a torch Sunday. So if you are a fourth and fifth and sixth, sixth grader or just fourth and fifth? I don't know. If you want to go, you can go. Uh, Head out with Caleb and Emily. You guys can talk. Yeah, Keen, yeah, you might have a better time out there. Uh, yeah, they'll be talking through this same text as we will be this evening. So you may have noticed that Jody started reading at verse 12 of chapter 8, uh, meaning she skipped 7, verse 53 to 8 through 11, the woman caught in adultery, where we find, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And I'm just going to skip the catchy intro here and just get right into this, all right? Hopefully you were able to read John Piper's teaching on this section that we sent out in the weekly email. But for those of you who didn't, let me just spend a couple minutes on this. Here's the thing. We don't have the original scroll that John wrote these words on. What we do have is copies of what he wrote, but that's actually a good thing, okay? John's original scroll likely got passed around and copied amongst all these early churches, and they began to make very careful copies. These copies went out all over the known world. Copies that we still have today. We either have fragments of or the entirety of the whole New Testament in 15,000 different copies. 5,700 of them are handwritten in Greek, and they are everywhere over the Mediterranean world. Now, because humans are the ones that were making these copies, sometimes they make mistakes. And many of these mistakes, most of them, in fact, are just a misspelling here or a word flip-flopped here or there. But it also appears that sometimes these copyists made dubious additional uh, or additions or changes. Uh, Now, don't fear. I'm not about to go like all Da Vinci Code on you here, uh, which is a work of compelling fiction but extraordinarily bad history. But because we have so many copies, if something looks fishy on a scroll from Turkey, we can compare that with the scrolls that we have in Alexandria or in Rome or in Greece or in France. And then we can look at all these copies and look, comparing them all together and say, oh yeah, look, this one right here from Turkey, this is obviously a mistake or a later addition by some copyist because none of the other scrolls around the Mediterranean world include what he did here or the mistake that he made here. Well, 753 to 8 through 11, or 811 is exactly that. It's not in the earliest manuscripts that we have, and it is likely not something that John actually wrote at all. As Piper and others point out, this story, the woman caught in adultery, is missing from all of the Greek manuscripts that we have of John's gospel before the 5th century. All the earliest church fathers who are commenting on this passage, they don't comment on this passage. They comment on John, and then they just go from 752 right to 812. They make no mention of it. 
In fact, the text flows very nicely from 752 to 812. If you leave out that story, the passage, uh, as if the story wasn't there, it seems like John knows exactly what he's doing. The style and the vocabulary of this little story is more unlike the rest of John's gospel than anything else in the entirety of the book. So because of this, and unlike Piper, I've decided not to preach that section. This was a difficult decision. I have spent many, many, many hours over the past few months in books and commentaries and getting feedback from a bunch of other preaching pastors. But ultimately, the job of the preacher is this, to stand behind the Bible and say, thus saith the Lord. This is God's word for us. Chris Andreoli and I were joking earlier this week that had I asked Jody to read this passage, we should have then asked her to say, this may or may not be the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, uh, right? So part of the reason this was so difficult, though, is because it's such a good story, right? Like, we all know it. In fact, it's very possible that this event actually and historically happened, that the oral tradition was very uh, carefully kept and handed down, and then some copyist in Alexandria or somewhere is like, hey, wait, we're missing the whole story about let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Uh, I got That happened, right? We got to put it in somewhere. Just John didn't write it, meaning this is not the inerrant and authoritative word of God. We can learn a lot from it, right? Like, you can devotionally spend some time in this passage this week and think through how to not so quickly look to the sin of others, but more carefully consider the complexity of our own sin. But in the same way that I wouldn't stand up here and for an entire evening deliver a sermon from, like, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or something, helpful, it helps me understand God, right? But it's not the word of God. Now, one last thought before getting into the meat. What I've just said should absolutely not shake your confidence in our English Bibles that you hold in your hands. No one is trying to pull a fast one on you, right? There's no like sneaky Christian conspiracy going on here, a power play. Nearly every English editor has included the double brackets. Do you see that? In your English Bibles, there are double brackets and and likely above that, a note that says the earliest manuscripts do not include this section. In fact, despite all of these copyist errors, because of the sheer volume of manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, we can have near 99% certainty that what we have is actually what the Greek writers originally wrote. And the remaining 1% is mostly just grammar errors or spelling mistakes. There's not one bit of historic Orthodox Christian doctrine that is up in the air with copyist errors. No. These manuscripts should give you more confidence in the Bible, not less. Think about it. If we only had one scroll of John, like, and it was like preserved in some museum in Cairo or something, even in the first few centuries, it might be much more believable to think that there's some vast Christian conspiracy that is like many centuries later making Jesus God when he wasn't really, because it'd be really easy to doctor one scroll. It's a lot more difficult to doctor 15,000 scrolls all over the Mediterranean world. This is no conspiracy. Okay, here we go. Back to the Feast of the Tabernacles and the actual flow of the narrative that John had us in before some, some hack job copyist <laughs> inserted some great story. But all right, we're going to look at the first half of John 8 tonight in three movements. Ready? Uh, the light of Christ, the darkness and slavery of sin, 
And then the freedom of Christ. The light of Christ, the darkness and slavery of sin, and the freedom of Christ. All right, the light of Christ. Remember, this is still feast time. Clint showed us last week how this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, or otherwise known as the Feast of Booths, and indeed our basic human longings are fulfilled in Christ. God had been preparing Israel for thousands of years uh, by this daily water-pouring ritual that happened annually here. And then just Jesus blows up on the scene and he says, look, the water that's being poured out, the what you think you need, the thing that you need for life and survival, it's me. I am what you need. I am the true and living water. Well, on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, a culmination happens. There's a huge party at the end of this week. Remember I told you two weeks ago that the Feast of Tabernacles had become the most, the most commonly celebrated, the favorite celebration and feast of the Jews of this day. They called it the season of our gladness. Well, this last night party at the end of the week was likely the reason. I wish I could project some images like on a screen with a PowerPoint projector, but we don't have one. But I wish I could show you an image of what the temple setup would have been like on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Inside these inner courts, or the, the outer courts, otherwise known as the, the court of women, where women and men could both be, there were these huge, like as tall as the walls of the temple itself, four uh, giant candelabra, giant torches. They each had these four 65-liter bowls around them that were filled with oil. The priest would light these suckers on the last night of this week-long feast, and there would be an all-night party. All night. There's singing, dancing, praising God, remembering the time that God led them through the wilderness by his light, by the pillar of fire. There's fire everywhere. There's light everywhere. You got to remember now, this is like the first century and there's no electricity, right? Like an all-night party, even a party after the sunset is difficult, if not out flat, impossible, right? But with these lamps and their light reflecting on the limestone white walls of the temple, it would have been like daytime all night long. Amazing. So this is the scene that Jesus walks into. Maybe even at night, John doesn't tell us, but at least with these torches that are set up, behind him. Maybe they're burning, maybe they're not, but they're there. And he stands up with these giant things right behind him, and he says, I am the light of the world. He whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. How did Israel survive in the wilderness and eventually arrive safely in the promised land? They followed the light. They followed the light. What had they memorized and reminded themselves of for centuries from Psalm 27? That the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And then just as like basic human beings, right? Why did these people, what did these people understand about the nature of light? That you have to have it, right? It's necessary to see. Without it, there's no vision. There's only difficulty. There's only adversity. There's only guesswork. There's only stumbling around. And so Jesus walks in, torches perhaps roaring behind him, and he says, I'm the light. I am the light. And not just of Israel, but of the entire world. The entire world to which Israel belongs that we've seen time and time again in John's gospel that is in darkness. A world of difficulty, a world of adversity, a world of guesswork, a world of stumbling around. A world opposed to God, refusing to follow him. And Jesus says, if you want to see, if you want to live, follow me. 
Don't stay in darkness, but follow me that you might see. And then again, just like they did in chapter 5, they put him back on trial. They're basically saying, you're lying about yourself. Who do you think you are? What are you saying? And you can perhaps hear the exasperation in Jesus' voice. He's like, okay, here we go again, right? Perhaps you even thought the same thing as you heard Jody reading this evening. You're like, I feel like this, he's kind of said some of this stuff before. But the world is opposed to Jesus. And no matter how many times he teaches, no matter how many times he reminds them of these things, it still remains in blindness. It still remains in darkness. And this whole chapter 8 is just setting the stage for where we'll get in chapter 9 when Jesus actually heals a blind man so that he can see and he can come to the light. Amazing. But for the time being, Jesus says, all right, okay, let's just go through this again, shall we? Now, the law requires testimony from more than one uh, witness. It requires testimony for two people, right? Did you read this in Deuteronomy this Wednesday? Uh, but Je- Jesus is saying, not only did I call witnesses in chapter 5, to testify about who I am. And I called John the Baptist, and I called all of the scriptures, I called Moses himself. All of these are testifying witnesses for my case. But here again, let me reiterate that God, my Father, is testifying even right now from heaven that I am who I say I am. Like, like I said here, right, a few weeks ago, what he's saying is really crazy stuff. And stuff like this right here is what leads modern psychologists to want to diagnose him with personality disorders, right? If he is not speaking the truth, he's legitimately crazy or intentionally evil. But for the moment, the crowd hasn't decided if he's crazy or evil, so they ask him in verse 19, all right, hotshot, where's your father? Who is he? How can we know that he's actually testifying for you on your behalf? To which Jesus replies, you know neither me, me, me nor my father, right? If you knew me, you'd know my father also. You're blind men. You can't see. Which gets us to our middle section. Even though there is clear and illuminating light of Christ, secondly, the people are stuck in their own darkness of slavery and of sin. So left to ourself, left to our willful, rebellious blindness, it is impossible to know God. Which is the point that Paul is making in Ephesians 4.18. Paul says, speaking of the world, he says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. In other words, as I've read one commentator on that verse, we don't have sinful hearts because we're ignorant of God. We're ignorant of God because of our sinful hearts. You see the difference? We are ignorant of God because of our sinful, dark hearts. We don't want to know him. It's our human tendency to not only suppress the knowledge of him, but actually hate that he exists in the first place. Or as we could summarize every human heart apart from his grace, there is no God and I hate him. Right? Isn't this generally... Uh, the argument that you might see on, on the internet of some who say that God doesn't exist, but also in your own heart. There is no God and I hate him. I don't want him to be there. And amazingly, God's own covenant people were using the law and their own moral religious resumes as a way to actually avoid God. They show that they wished he wasn't there in the first place. If all that is needed is keeping the rules, if all that is needed is keeping yourself externally, religiously cleaned up, then you actually have no need for a God of grace. If you have nothing to be saved from, then you don't need salvation, 
or so you think. So as we read in a book club last year, Prodigal God, it's obvious that many can break the rules as a way to try to avoid God. I don't want anything to do with the Lord, so I'm just going to live my life however I'd like. Thank you very much. We can see that that is a way to avoid God. And some of us need to be confronted with the reality that God is God and that you are not. That you are not the captain of the universe. That you are not the ultimate moral arbiter of what is right and wrong in the universe. But that God, as a creator, deserves your entire life. And we need to be confronted with that reality, to repent, to not be, like Jesus says, to avoid him and ignore him and be left in our sins and in our death. Come to him. But many of us, perhaps more of us in this room tonight, need to be confronted with the reality that we have treated keeping the rules just as equally as a way to avoid God. Just to do the Christian thing and look like Christians look, go where Christians go and respond like we think Christians ought to respond, and then I'll be right before the Lord. Then he'll be pleased and he'll accept me. But then I don't have to actually bother with really knowing him, with letting him get all intrusive up in my business, because I just can keep things the way that they ought to be. I'll keep the right rules and do the right things, and then I can just as equally as breaking the rules by keeping the rules, avoid him altogether as well. Blind and dark hearts that we have. And Jesus is saying that this kind of thinking showed the Jews in this day and shows us as well that we actually don't know God the Father. We don't see him. We don't see Christ. We don't know God the Father or God the Son. So in verse 21, he said to them again, I'm going away. And you'll seek me, and you will die in your sins. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Last week, when he said something similar in chapter 7, the Jews all assumed that he was like going on a mission trip somewhere. This week, they really think he might be a troubled individual. They think he might be considering what many Jews considered was the worst thing that one could possibly do. Suicide. They are so blind to what he is saying that they assume that he's just cryptically dropping hints that what he's going to do is something crazy, something that they're unwilling to do, kill himself. The irony, of course, being that they're wrong in assuming that Jesus is going away means that he's going to kill himself, but they are profoundly right that his going away will come by his laying down his life, by his death. And he tells them in verse 23 that they don't understand nor will they ever understand because he is from heaven and they are from the world. He is from the realm of God. They are from the realm of evil, of darkness, and of blindness. And being the light and calling them evil as he did in chapter 7 verse 7, they hate the light. They hate that that the light is coming into their darkness and exposing their darkness. They hate him. And nothing will do to fix this problem than to be born again, as he told Nicodemus in chapter 3, that your natural birth brought you into the world, but you need a second spiritual birth to take you out of it, to not be of the world any longer. And until you do, verse 24, you'll die in your sins. You will be left for your death in your sins until you come to him, until you come to the light and receive a second birth. 
He says, unless you believe that I am he. Now, what Jesus just said was a small breadcrumb that will lead to the bomb at the end of the chapter. But what he says is when he says, I am he, it's either a straight up reference to Exodus 3, where God told Moses his name, I am Yahweh. He might have just said, I am Yahweh. Or it is the I am he phrase that God uses about himself over and over and over again from Isaiah 40 through 55. Either way, Jesus just made a clear claim that he is God. Unless you believe that I am God, that I am here for your life, that I am here for your light, you will be left in your death and in your sins. Now there's going to be no misunderstanding what he means in verse 58. Is he makes it clear, and they're all grabbing stones to kill him for his blasphemy. But he kind of slips it in here. And maybe he was talking too fast, so who knows? So verse 25, the crowd's response is, hey, what did you just say? Who, who are you again? And if it's possible to have a sinless moment of exasperation, then this is surely it. Jesus says, the same thing I've been telling you from the beginning. You're not listening. You don't understand now, but you will. You will understand, verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. As soon as this feast is over, Jesus is going to leave Jerusalem. And the next time He returns will be His last. Perhaps many in this same crowd, in less than a year, will scream to Pilate, crucify Him. And only then will they see and will they understand, not What Jesus is saying here is not that everyone in Jerusalem, all of these worldly opponents, they will come to believe in Jesus, but that when someone comes to believe in Christ, it comes first when they understand the cross, when they understand who he is by his death. That seeing the Son of God crucified on the cross, that person comes to the conclusion that surely this is the Son of God, the one who has died on my behalf and in my place. And this is not just some accident because God the Father fell asleep at the wheel of the universe. It's not like Jesus took on flesh and then he accidentally made some people mad and they got so mad that they want to kill him and then God was snoozing and oops, it's too late. I either can't or won't stop them. No, verse 29. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Or as he'll later say in chapter 10, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it back up again. This charge I have received from my father. This is the eternal plan of the triune God to save people from their sin, to bring light to the darkness, to bring sight to the blind, to bring life to the dead, to bring freedom to the slave. In verse 30, as he was saying all these things, many, many believed in him. They heard what he said, and they believed. But Jesus has seen this bit before, both in people believing in him after he had performed many signs, and even after he had taught. But he's also seen the fickleness of this so-called faith. Most recently, at the Passover feeding of the 5,000, chapter 5 and 6, and his teaching on his body and his blood, many of his so-called disciples who would have at one point said, yes, I believe in him, they left because of the difficulty of what he was teaching. So he's going to keep pressing in here. Many believed in him, but he's going to make sure that they know what they're signing up for. 
and that the reality of following him is better than anything that they could have imagined, more than what they initially thought they were signing up for. So first we saw the light of Christ, and then we saw Jesus confront and show the darkness and slavery of sin. So lastly, let's think through the freedom of Christ that he's actually and really offering. The freedom of Christ. Verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. At the University of Texas, where I did my undergraduate work, there at the, the, the main tower, uh, the center point of the campus, underneath the tower, engraved in the limestone, is, ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Uh, this is a well-known verse. And at the University of Texas, me and some buddies would just walk around and say, hey, you know where that came from? And uh, then we'd just start talking about the Bible. Uh, but most people just assume, yeah, if I can just know more about the world, maybe academically, then I will not be enslaved to the lack of knowledge. This is not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, it's not enough to just say, I'm with you, Jesus. I'm, I'm on your team. He says, this, is, this does not make you one of my true disciples. This is, does not make you one of my true followers, my apprentices. You're actually one of my followers if you abide, if you live, if you dwell in my word, my teaching, if and when you consider even the hard things, but by faith continue to follow me, you'll know that you're walking in my steps. It's going to be hard, but here's the thing. Following me is actually going to be the way to freedom. It's going to be the way that you're set, you're set free. And they say, set free? These new, call, new so-called believers ask in verse 33, from whom? We've never been enslaved to anyone, which is actually a hilarious thing for them to say. Because, like, basically there had never been a world power in Middle Eastern history whom the Jews had not been enslaved under, right? Egypt and Assyria and Persia and Greece and now Rome, right? Like, but I think what they likely mean is that even though they have, even in this moment, been enslaved physically, they had never been so dominated that they had been enslaved spiritually. But Jesus says, no, 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 you're, you're mistaken. You've always been enslaved. Even in the glory days of David and Solomon, you were just as much in slavery as you were in Egypt. And by a taskmaster, much more cruel, much more demanding than any that you had by the banks of the Nile or even now in a Roman centurion. You, like every human in history, are enslaved in your sin. You have no mastery over it. Your, your will is in bondage, which is Paul's teaching, among other places, in Romans 6. The heart wants what it wants. And apart from the work of the Spirit, it wants only the self. Augustine explained this in several helpful categories, that before the fall, in this pre-sin state, Adam was in a state that was able not to sin. But after the fall, Adam and then all of us as the inheritors of his nature are now in a state of not able not to sin. Does that make sense? We are actually not able not to sin apart from the work of Christ in our lives. We run around from here and there trying to find things that will give just this next few minutes or the next day meaning. 
Why should I wake up tomorrow? There's got to be something. Let me try to find it. This is a drum that we've been beating through John's gospel, but we naturally and to ourselves think that if I can just have this, or if I can just do that, or if I can just become this, or if I can just avoid that, then I'll have some sort of meaning for today, for tomorrow. Or I'm actually convinced that there is no meaning in this life, certainly not joy, So perhaps I just need to find something that will give me a little bit of relief or solace. So I'll move from this drug or that bottle or constant entertainment, just binging through Netflix so I can just pretend the world is not there. I can check out. And the taskmaster of more possessions or a fitter body is up there cracking the whip. Just up there cackling as he demands more promotions and bigger houses or smarter, or more athletic, or more obedient kids, or better grades, or another high, or one sexual experience to the next, just to give us a little bit of a thrill. More, more, more. Work, work, work for meaning and for happiness. Otherwise, life just isn't worth living. There is no meaning to this life. And the teaching of the Bible is that we're bound to only choose and even want these kinds of slavery, That we actually desire these kinds of taskmasters up there cracking the whip. We like it. But then many of us see Jesus. We we hear his offer of freedom and we say, yeah, yeah, I'd like that freedom. But even our response can be self-serving, can't it? We treat Jesus as, I recently heard Tim Mackey of the Bible Project videos, we, we treat Jesus as a politician. Think about it. Why do we ever become convinced to vote for one candidate over another? Because ultimately, we become convinced that if this person gets elected, my life will be easier. So I like what she is saying about universal health care. I would like to have my health taken care of, so I'll vote for her. I presently don't feel safe in this city or this country. He's promising to make me more safe, so I'll vote for him. The economy or the paychecks that I think that I deserve aren't as high as I think they should be. He's promising to make the economy go, so I'll vote for him. Or I just like her personally. I would, I think I'd have a a deeper sense of meaning in my life if I could identify with her as my representative leader and then she actually led us. And so then we'll often throw our lives into making sure that that candidate gets elected. We'll put his name on the back of our car. We'll go to his rallies to be amongst his people. We'll even contribute money to his campaign. We'll give, we'll give, we'll give to make sure it happens. And just like politicians we're considering voting for, coming to Jesus is ultimately about what he can do for me, about making my life easier. And then inevitably, as politicians let us down, you turn on them, you turn on him. I worked so hard for you. I did all that you asked. I came to your rallies. I gave you money. I did everything that I thought you wanted from me, and you're not keeping the promises that I thought you were making. And so we're out. Like the disciples, we're out. I'll find another politician or another religion or another leader who will actually be able to give me what I want. But Jesus is not about attracting a crowd to make sure that he gets elected. He's not about stump speeches to make empty promises just to persuade fickle crowds. 
As he'll say in Matthew's gospel, he'll say, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, it's true that I'm offering you life in the greatest amount of infinite joy. It may not look like it initially. What it really means is that I'm asking you to trust me so much that you would die to yourself. That your old self in darkness and blindness would die. That you would find life in me. That's not a very good campaign platform, right? Like Josh Lyman and Sam Seaborn would kibosh that in two seconds. None of you giggled at that. That was a great joke. (laughs) Forget it. Uncultured. So in that sense, uh, Jesus is less than a politician and more like a skilled mountain guide. He's finding us trapped up there on the mountain with no idea how to get down. He's the only one up there with a headlamp and he knows the way. But some of the paths that he's leading us toward look really hard. And in fact, turning away from the path that he's leaning, leading us toward looks really grassy and like lush green grass. It looks a lot easier to go the way that he is leading, to go away from it. I think, Jesus, I'd rather just go the other way. What you're asking looks unreasonable. But Jesus is saying, follow me. Follow me and I'll set you free. I'll set you free. The way to life is actually through your death. The death of the old self living only for the self, always seeking whatever you want, not able not to sin. But how's that going for you? How is that taskmaster treating you? Is it giving you the joy that you think that it's offering and promising? Through my death, though, through my coming death by faith and sharing in it, you can then share in my resurrection life as well. Where you'll not only return to the original state of Adam, of able not to sin, we, for those of us in Christ now, he's given us by his spirit life and open eyes and light where we're actually now able not to sin, but then in glory, he will return us to a state that Adam never even got to experience of not able to sin. Amazing, infinite joy forever. Now, there's more to say about this kind of slavery and freedom, which is why we'll kind of overlap and pick it back up in verse 34 again next week. But for now, is your world illuminated by Christ? Does the light of Christ actually give you joy, or does it cause you to skitter towards the shadows? Come to him. Apart from the light of Christ, you are left in your sins and your coming eternal death. Or are you following the mountain guide safely home? However difficult his trail that he is blazing may seem. Or perhaps have you been disillusioned with Jesus lately? You've come to think of him as the politician who has not kept his campaign promises. You thought he had made all these promises to you. That if you would just come to him and give give him your life. Come to his campaign meetings here on Sunday evenings. And give a little bit of money. Then he's going to make life so much more easier. These are not the promises that he's made. I hope that you've seen over these last few months in John's gospel that these teachings from John are far more than stump speeches. He's not just trying to whip us up into an emotional following of saying, yes, I'm with him, but be unwilling to follow him. 
He's calling us to count the cost and then to follow him to life. And next week, next week we'll see that those who supposedly had believed in him, he then turns and on top of calling them slaves like he just did here, he's going to call them sons of the devil despite their supposed professed belief in them. They only wanted him as a sweeten-the-deal add-on to make their lives easier. Not as he actually is, not as the light of the world, not as the bread of life, not as living water, not as the very creator God who loves me and gave his life for me. So come back next week. Hopefully our, our view and our focus is getting clearer and clearer of him each week. Hopefully John is acting like an uh, optometrist. He's like, one or two. All right, and we're, we're getting a little bit clearer each week. Each week as our prescription gets clearer of who Jesus the Christ actually is. I'd invite you to spend some more time in chapter 8 this time. Perhaps even spend some time devotionally in 8 or 753 through 811. There's much to be learned there and much to love God more dearly through that passage. Let's spend some time this week in John 8 as we prepare to the, for the second half of this chapter and then come for uh, a, an amazing miracle of giving sight where there was only blindness in chapter 9. Let's ask for his help now together. Oh Christ, we are humble. We pray that you would uh, continue to confront us in our sin. That you would continue to shine light where there is darkness. And that in our humility, in our uh, understanding of who we are and who you are, that your exposing light is actually for our good, for our joy, for our freedom. And we pray that we would follow you more closely as our guide with a headlamp, that you are leading us to life, you are leading us to freedom, you are leading us to joy. Father, I pray for those who have not come to the light yet, who have not come to see you as a mountain guide, has not come to see you as their very God and creator. We pray that you would cause repentance, we pray that you would cause a change in hearts and minds so that the light is actually welcomed. We pray that you might even do that tonight. We pray that you would fix faith firmly on Christ. We pray that you would strengthen faith for those who already have it. We pray that you might even do that in now considering what you have done in your body and blood as we remember the Lord's Supper. We pray that you would do this for your good, for your glory, and for our joy. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.